Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Halloween is tomorrow, the election a week from Tuesday. Scary times all around. So where to turn for companionship and comfort? Perhaps to the quadruped that, through thick and thin, has always been humanity's best friend, the dog. Every day, it seems, we learn more about a dog's life and its secrets, as Martha Teichner will explain in our cover story. What has the world come to now that people can eavesdrop on their dogs? Come here, pig. Piglet. So you can't call a dog on the phone. No. But this is the next best thing? Yeah, exactly. Later this Sunday morning, the real secret life of pets. FYI, sometimes it isn't pretty. Superstition says comets are a portent of singular events. And there's a show about a comet in previews on Broadway that heralds a big career first for the singer Josh Groban. Anthony Mason will tell us all about it. When the musical Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812 makes its Broadway debut next month, so will its star, Josh Groban. This is something you've wanted for a long time. Yeah, it was my childhood dream. The singer even learned to play the accordion. Backstage with Josh Groban as he prepares to take his first bow on Broadway. Later on Sunday morning. For our Sunday profile, we look to an actor who's played everyone from theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking to a Harry Potter spin-off hero. His name is Eddie Redmayne. And this morning, he's talking to our Tracy Smith. What's it like coming back here? It's weirdly nostalgic. Before he hit the big time, Oscar winner Eddie Redmayne couldn't find an acting job, and his mom thought maybe he should try something else. She's like, darling, have you thought about becoming a, a lawyer? I mean, lawyers are basically actors. It's the same thing. And she would occasionally repeat this. I'd be like, Mom, have you ever seen me win an argument? And she'd be like, no. I'm like, so. <laughs> Just wait till Mom sees this. The fantastic Eddie Redmayne, ahead this Sunday morning. The day before Halloween is none too soon to say boo. Several of our colleagues will provide some frightening fare this morning, among them Jan Crawford. Once upon a midnight dreary, the opening words of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, that menacing bird that looks right at home on Halloween. That deep black of the feathers, the eyes that seem like they're always watching, like they never blink, and then they're always around dead things. From ravens to scarecrows to graveyards, the things that have a saying, boo, ahead on Sunday morning. Rita Braver discovers an outbreak of Pennsylvania. Steve Hartman has found two filmmakers of genuine genius. Bob Surratt has a fan's eye view of the Chicago Cubs bid for glory and more. Next. There is some research which shows that dogs use their right and left nostrils differently. Sniffing out the inner lives of dogs. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Noodle here seems to be enjoying a dog's life. But what's going on inside that noodle brain? 
What's day-to-day -day life like for a dog? Our cover story comes from our resident dog lover, Martha Teichner. At BarkBox, a New York City company that sends out treats and toys to dogs every month by subscription, people can bring their dogs to work. The office is literally crawling with them. And for employees whose dogs are maybe too big or aren't the office type, Piggy. doggy cams are as available as baby monitors. What's great is it has sound so that I can hear when he shifts, or, and he can hear me. I can, like, holler at him, squeak at him. It feels like a way to sort of have a phone conversation. Come here, pig. Video producer Zoe Costello watches her dog live. It's a comfort. It makes me feel good to see him, to see that he's okay, alone. Right now you're looking at my dog, Monty. Company controller Matt Hagel is another shameless voyeur. Sometimes I'll communicate through it to yell at him if he's doing something bad. And does he respond? Uh, yeah, he can hear me. So if you say no, he'll get it? He'll get it. He may not listen. So normally right when we leave, he'll, I think he gets upset. But then after that, he'll just sleep. Uh, we leave music on for him, so he likes reggae music. But the sleep part, that's what most dogs do when they're home alone. The average dog sleeps 12 to 14 hours a day. It's nothing like the secret life of pets. Sorry to disappoint you. The film managed to gross nearly a billion dollars and was one of the summer's biggest blockbusters. You be a good boy, Leonard. The point of the movie is that the pets' lives start the minute we leave. Is that or is that not true? I feel like it's the reverse. Research scientist Alexandra Horowitz studies dog cognition. Her new book is Being a Dog, published by Scribner, a subsidiary of CBS. They are our social companions. We've bred them to be so. And their existence really revolves around our presence and interaction with us. And that's exactly what they don't have when we leave them. Pets do have a secret life, though. For dogs, it's not so much about this as it is about this. They experience the world mainly through their noses. The dog's nose is masterful. Uh, it's su such an impressive organ. Humans have about six million olfactory receptors. Dogs have 300 million. They sniff more and they sniff more rapidly than we do. And that's because they need to get the odors from the outside world all the way up to the epithelial tissue, the cells that do the smelling. And that's really at the back of the nose. They exhale through those little curled slits on the sides of their noses. And listen to this. There is some research which shows that dogs use their right and left nostrils differently. So they start out sniffing with the right and then move to the left. And so there's a kind of stereo olfaction. We gathered a few dogs, Alexandra Horowitz's dog Finnegan, Ricky, and June, my dog Minnie, oh. to see some noses in action. A pretty classic greeting ritual. How does a, a dog know from smelling whether the dog they're meeting is a friend or an enemy? I don't think there's anything inherently friend or foe about a smell. Maybe younger or older, healthier or less healthy, 
sick or recently eaten some things. Can they smell fear? Can they smell love? Yeah, I don't think it's fan too fantastic to say that in some way they can smell fear, in some way they smell love. And that's because we're giving off odors that correspond to a state of fear or feeling of affection. We know about tracking dogs, bomb-sniffing dogs, even bedbug-finding dogs, and now this. There are now a lot of ex working dogs who are being trained to detect cancers, cancers in urine, on breath, in exhaled breath, on the body. And would you believe dogs can also smell time? If I leave the house in the morning, my house is full of my smell. An hour later, a lot of it will have disappeared. So knowing what the room smells like after an eight-hour day. Yeah, a lot of people talk about um, dogs who seem to know when their owners are coming home, and they think it might be a kind of psychic ability, but I think it's a smelling ability, essentially, and not smelling their approach, but smelling how long somebody is gone. Cute, but one not-so-cute side effect of smelling time can be separation anxiety. When dogs go crazy and destroy things when their owners leave. It's a very big thing. It's like 15 to 17 percent of the nation's 73 million dogs have overt, you know, obvious separation anxiety. Dr. Nicholas Dodman recently retired as director of the Animal Behavior Program at Tufts University's Veterinary School. His new book, Pets on the Couch, is published by CBS's Simon & Schuster. What a beautiful looking dog. Shadow was returned to a shelter twice before Maya Haraseko adopted him eight months ago. He removed the wall-to-wall carpeting, just completely demolished the room. And, you know, his breaking air conditioners, breaking window screens, just trying to get out, barking. Dr. Dodman on a house call to Haraseko's Cambridge, Massachusetts apartment in August. We're going to kind of get him to expect that when the door closes, wonderful things happen. Can you just hold him with the collar and slip out? His advice to Maya, leave as if it's no big deal, but provide Shadow entertainment. Keep him busy and not bored while she's out. And when she comes back... The greeting's low-key. You could say, hey, Shadow, how's it going? Slap me for. And in Shadow's case... I think also we probably need some kind of medicine, something like, you know, for example, Zoloft. Dr. Dodman has spent decades advocating using human mood-stabilizing drugs like Zoloft, Prozac, and others on pets because people and animals share the same disorders. The list would include aggression, phobias, PTSD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, autism, uh, in one model, Tourette's syndrome. Alzheimer's? Oh, Alzheimer's too. For separation anxiety, he prescribes behavior modification first. Drugs as a last resort. Sometimes people are emotionally exhausted, they're financially drained, and they say, if you can't fix this problem within two or three months, we're going to take him to the pound or we'll have the vet put him to sleep. When I hear that, I say, let's use the medication. Good news about Shadow. After three months following Dr. Dodman's prescription, he can be left alone for at least 
four hours without destroying anything. A secret life tamer than it used to be, but a lot happier for all concerned. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, October 30th, 1894, 122 years ago today. The perfect day for a workplace punch. For that was the day Daniel M. Cooper of Rochester, New York, received a patent for his workman's time recorder. The first device to use a card to record the time at which an employee punched in and punched out from work. The first such workplace time clock, but hardly the last. Cooper sold his patent to a local businessman, who then created a company to market the Rochester brand time recorder, a company that eventually became part of IBM. Yes, that IBM. Time clocks quickly became a ubiquitous part of the American industrial landscape. Factory workers were punching in at workplaces large and small, a practice familiar enough to become part of our popular culture. Charlie Chaplin rapidly punched a time clock in his classic 1936 film, Modern Times. Today's time clocks go far beyond the card technology of Daniel M. Cooper's time. With an eye toward avoiding so-called buddy punch-ins, having a friend punch in for you, many modern clocks use biometrics to validate identity, as in this promotion for a product called Wasp Time. To clock in and out, the employee places his or her finger in the fingerprint recognition window. And though the time clock is still very much with us, the rapid growth in telecommuting is giving it a run for its money. According to one analysis, the number of home-based workers logging on rather than punching in jumped 100% between 2005 to 2014. Nearly 3% of all employees now work from home at least half the time. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. These carved pumpkins, some of them commissioned by New York Center for Architecture, are just one of the ways we'll be saying boo throughout the morning. Here's Jan Crawford with another. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary. So begins Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, a perfect poem for Halloween. A dark tale of death about a grieving lover haunted, taunted by the hovering presence of <coughs> this guy. <coughs> Such a nasty reputation for an animal that's actually wicked, <coughs> smart. How intelligent? I would say as intelligent as great apes or dolphins. Rebecca Sterniolo is a curator at the Smithsonian's National Zoo in Washington. She feels that ravens, like Iris and Shogun here, get a bad rap. The raven has a big brain. Big brain, exactly. <laughs> Especially relative to their size. They use it to think for things. They use it to solve puzzles. They use it to communicate with each other to, you know, assess what's going on in their environment. And into their environment is where we went. So in we go. In we go. 
They're waiting for us. Oh my God. There's All not right. a black cat in here too, is there? No, or ladders. <laughs> no, ladders. no ladders either. Ravens are crafty, hiding food, manipulating a string to eat a mouse. Now that he can reach it, he'll pull it out and eat it. Iris even knows how to paint. That's good. Again, that's good. Some Hi. can mimic human voice. Hello. Hi. Hi. Often confused with crows, ravens are larger, have a wedge-shaped tail with a low, throaty caw. We see them in the wild, in captivity, and in popular culture. Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, Game of Thrones, in comic books and folklore. So why do we associate them with evil? That deep black of the feathers, the eyes that seem like they're always watching, like they never blink. And then they're always around dead things, right? Because they're scavengers. They like to pick at corpses. Professor Caitlin benson lot specializes in the horror genre at Georgetown University. She says the mythology goes back centuries. So ravens are ominous birds in literature going back all the way to Shakespeare. They come up in Macbeth, they come up in Othello. Lysander in Midsummer Night's Dream asks, would anyone not trade a raven for a dove? He's referencing the book of Genesis there. It's important that we remember that ravens have connoted death and the supernatural for hundreds of years. It's really weird to be so close to something that you've heard so many terrible, frightening things about. Yeah. Beauty, brains, maligned and misunderstood. Will I fear them from now on? To quote the raven, Nevermore. Still to come, I'm so ready. Singer Josh Groban on Broadway. But next... That's a boat truckle, right? No. A Halloween visit with actor Eddie Redmayne. So what next? Prove it. Prove with a single equation that time had a beginning. Wouldn't that be nice, Professor? It's Sunday morning on CBS, One, and here again is two, Jane Pauley. Eddie Redmayne won an Oscar for his role as the brilliant Dr. Stephen Hawking in The Theory of Everything. Up next, a starring role in a fanciful new J.K. Rowling film. But not before he talks to Tracy Smith for our Sunday profile. Just in case you were wondering what your kids' Halloween costumes were going to be next year, here's a quick peek. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is J.K. Rowling's spin-off of her Harry Potter series. But this time, instead of Harry Potter, the hero is a character named Newt Scamander, played by 34-year-old Eddie Redmayne, who travels to America with a suitcase full of magical creatures and, producers hope, the makings of a movie mega-hit. Welcome to New York. 
For Eddie Redmayne, home is in the relative quiet of central London, where he can sit at his favorite cafe and be left alone, for now anyway. And seriously, I mean, are you prepared for this next step? There will be a lot of fans out there. This is, this is a J.K. Rowling film. This is, this is the Harry Potter franchise. This is, this is huge. People often say, and at various stages in my um, sort of career, have gone, are you prepared for this? And I always kind of go, what preparation do you do? <laughs> do you like sit there and sort of armor up? You know, like, uh, I don't think you can. Firstly, that involves the expectation that the thing is going to be hugely successful, and that's something that I will never let my uh, head go to. But the other thing is, even when things are successful, people go, God, your life must have changed. But really, it doesn't really. You still live your own way and carve your own path, and, and the rest is noise, I think, really. But for him, that noise has been pretty nice. His turn as a transgender artist in last year's The Danish Girl earned him his second consecutive Academy Award nomination. But the on-screen transformation here didn't happen quickly or easily. It doesn't matter what I wear. It's when I dream. That Lily's dreams. I always feel like I've, I've never been someone that was sort of blessed with like a, a sort of innate talent of, of just being able to do things. You, I have to work at it and learn from your mistakes. Really? And, yeah, no, definitely. And Because and, to us it looks uh, no, like I'm you're sure not it working. Doesn't. If you go and look at some of the early <laughs> films, you'll be, you'll be absolutely sure that that's not the case. But um, no, I have to really have to work. Here's a good example. Redmayne spent five months learning how to move like an ALS patient for his role as physicist Dr. Stephen Hawking, and he won the Oscar for this one. This is temporary. He actually got the part without an audition, but to him, that was more curse than blessing. At least if you've auditioned for it, the producers and all the people involved have some sense of what you're going to do, you know, so you don't turn up on day one on set and they go, whoa, you're going to do it like that? Like, <laughs> so the universe getting smaller and smaller, getting denser and denser. So when it came time for him to help audition his co-star, Felicity Jones, Redmayne's paranoia got the better of him and director James Marsh had to talk him down. Eddie, this isn't an audition for you. Let me just reaffirm, you're not being auditioned. Like, and he said it so many times that I was like, I'm clearly being auditioned. <laughs> this is like, and, and it was similar with Fantastic Beasts. You are neurotic? I have moments, definitely, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't always oh. so tightly wound. Born in London to a banker and a business owner, Eddie Redmayne went to some of the best schools in Britain. He sang in the choir at Eton and was a classmate of the future King of England, Prince William. What's it like coming back here? It's weirdly nostalgic. As a college student, he took a keen interest in drama and got his first professional role here at the Globe in London in a 2002 production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. It gives a very echo to the seat where love is thrown. As a very convincing viola, a woman, corset and all. For years, when I then started doing films and period dramas, I did quite a lot of Elizabethan period dramas, you know, the actresses would often be complaining, going, God, this course, it hurts. I was like, I know. I know your pain. I know how it feels. 
It's beautiful. You have the National Theatre down here. You have the- he also did pretty well when he played a man, winning rave reviews and a 2010 Tony Award for the Broadway play Red. I think looking at your, you had a comfortable upbringing, went to great schools, and success came fairly early. Mm. I think some people might look at it and say it was easy. Mm. Well, they would be right in the sense that compared to many actors, um, I've had a a remarkably lucky and uh, easy run of it. But to you, it feels like you feel the struggles. And it was through going to sort of years of auditions. I think it was about three or four years before I got anything sort of properly on screen. I remember also, though, my mum, when I was younger and I was showing interest, that perhaps if you get knocked by bad reviews and stuff, she would see that it would hurt a bit. And she's like, darling, have you thought about becoming a, a lawyer? I mean, lawyers are basically actors. It's the same thing. And she would occasionally repeat this. And I'd be like, mum, have you ever seen me win an argument? And she'd be like, no. I'm like, so. <laughs> <laughs> I have something in my eye. His struggle seemed to end in 2011. I can't see anything. With a big screen breakout role as a young filmmaker <laughs> smitten with Marilyn Monroe. Do I care if I should die? Now she goes across the sea. His Eaton Choir Boy experience came in handy in 2012's Les Miserables. My place is here. I fight with you. Do you see yourself as a, as a singer? Do I think of myself as a singer? I really enjoy singing, but I, I'm not sure I'm... I sound a bit like Kermit the Frog. No, you <laughs> I, do, I do. I do. Is that working? There's a kind of self-deprecating Jimmy Stewart quality to Eddie Redmayne. Thank you okay. so much. You're so welcome. He married his longtime girlfriend, antiques dealer Hannah Bagshaw, a few weeks before he won the Oscar in 2015. This summer, they had a baby girl. In short, if you're looking for off-screen drama, look elsewhere. You have a reputation for being one of the nicest actors in the business. Is that I hate so- that word. You that's hate nice? That's much more lovely. Than- <laughs> nice Why? is so boring. Uh, but nice, I'd rather nice than reprehensible, toxic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Why should I help you? I take it I have to make it worth your while. Mm. Nothing boring about his schedule. Fantastic his Beasts is reportedly the first of five installments. Wait a minute. That's a boat truckle, right? No. Oh, come on. They pick locks, am I right? You're not having him. Well, good luck getting back alive, Mr. Scamander. You've accomplished so much already. Tony, Oscar, now you're in a big blockbuster in case anyone was wondering whether you were going to do that. Right. I mean, what's left? When you put it in the term of a checklist. Uh, <laughs> and I don't mean things. to say that no, you're... No, 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 but it's interesting because actually the reason you get into this is to play interesting people or just to play, to tell stories that intrigue you and, and none, of, uh, none of that changes. So although maybe those things feel like a lovely um, checklist, it doesn't stop your appetite for wanting to tell stories. Right? You still have that appetite. Still have that appetite, yeah. Next. Coloring can be therapeutic. It has a therapeutic value to people. Color us busy. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Are coloring books just for kids like Emily, Zoe, and David here? They're the offspring of our Sunday morning producer, Gabe Falcon. 
Well, move over, kids. Rita Braver has the story of adults afflicted with pencil mania. Once a month, not far from the U.S. Capitol. Hey, guys, we're ready. A resolute group files into a basement room in a D.C. public library. I haven't told my family yet. <laughs> I'll have to break it to them slowly. And it begins. We have your pencils, your markers, all of your things here. Yes, it's a coloring club. Maybe coming soon to a neighborhood near you. This mixing colors, that's what I'm good at doing. That's right, grown-ups with crayons and markers, all part of a craze that's sweeping the whole world, adult coloring books. Believe it or not, they often become the top-selling books on Amazon. These two students actually started coloring back in their native country. In Korea, it is very popular, the coloring books and coloring uh, pencils. The book called Secret Garden was very Secret popular. Garden. Secret Garden, published in 2013, is credited with starting the whole trend. It's a book filled with elegant and fanciful images, and it has spawned an industry of imitations and variations. At a recent coloring party in Florida, in honor of the Doodlers Anonymous coloring book, adults like Jennifer Kaminsky were proud to be caught up in what used to be known as a childish pursuit. I don't think you ever grow out of liking to color. And today, you can color the adventures of Donald Trump or the perfection of Ryan Gosling. There's even a new crop of coloring books devoted to swear words. But most of the colorers we met, and they do tend to be women, agree with Lisa Bono, who says it lets her leave her cares behind. It's like permission to push everything else aside at the moment and that your main mission in life right now is to color this damn cupcake. Those cupcakes are from the book Color Me Happy, part of a series that has sold more than two million copies. Shocking to you? Very shocking. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Lacey Mucklow is the author, underscore author, of the books. While the pictures are drawn by an artist in Wales, Mucklow, a licensed art therapist, provides commentary, telling readers, for example, to use hues that personally increase your sense of happiness and pleasure. What's the biggest hope that you would have from somebody who picks up one of your books and starts to use it? I hope they find that it helps them in whatever way it is. If it helps them relax and sleep better, great. If it helps them get through a stressful time, wonderful. Coloring can be therapeutic. It has a therapeutic value to people. Anybody injured? In fact, in Phoenix, Arizona, coloring books provide stress relief to those who answer 911 calls. But artist Steve McDonald begged his publishers not to make any therapy claims for his books. We weren't setting out to create a mental aid. We were setting out to create a book full of wonderful art that was going to hopefully inspire people to be creative. And so in fantastic cities and fantastic structures, his best-selling books McDonald has created fabulous kingdoms. 
so it might surprise you to see where he lives and works, two hours north of Toronto. So why does a guy who's known for his urban scenes live here? I, I think it gives me, I think if I lived in the middle of a city and drew the city and spent all my time creating artwork of a city, I might go a little bit insane. <laughs> I fell in love with lines a long time ago. So. And though he was once known for paintings and drawings sold in art galleries, he's put that on hold. I think a lot of artists might kind of scoff at this and say, oh, look, he's just selling out here. That's what this is about. I'm an illustrator. I'm an image creator. Uh, I don't have a high and pompous view on where my art belongs or where it should hang. And I think it's wonderful creating original work that hangs over someone's living room walls. I think it's just as legitimate creating imagery that ends up on a sneaker. Meanwhile, the folks at Crayola, who've been in the coloring business for 113 years, have created special pencils, markers, and books to get even more adults hooked. It is kind of addictive. It is. Right? Mm-hmm. So is that a bad thing or is that okay? It's okay as long as it doesn't impair other parts of your life. <laughs> if you're coloring instead of going to work, you know, that could be a problem. That could but. be a problem. Just ahead. But is it art? It happened this past week. A huge new honor for those tiny cell phone pictographs. New York's Museum of Modern Art announced Wednesday it's acquired the original 176 emoji, first introduced by Japan's National Phone Company in 1999. A combination of the Japanese words for picture and character, the original emoji were designed to communicate useful information to small cell phone screens in the form of an image just 12 pixels square. Some of these original emoji, such as the images for weather and numbers, are self-explanatory. Others are somewhat more obscure. In announcing its acquisition, the museum says in part, emoji tap into a long tradition of expressive and visual language. Images and patterns have been incorporated within text since antiquity and well into our own time. Largely confined to Japan at first, emoji jumped to cell phones around the world starting in 2010. Far more complex and elaborate than those first simple images, standardized emoji now number close to 2,000. And appropriately enough for this time of year, the fifth most popular emoji is, what else? The jack-o'-lantern. What says Halloween better than a spooky graveyard under a full moon? Yet what better place to take the full measure of a man? Here's Mark Strassman. Millbridge in northern Maine is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it sort of town. It's the kind of place where people like Everard Hall still believe in doing things the old-fashioned way, especially in his line of work. Everybody likes me in town. Everybody likes me all around the towns here. I never had nobody say anything that was bad about my work. For the past 49 years, 
Hall has been perfecting what he considers his craft. He digs graves entirely by hand. You use a pick and shovel. Yeah. Not a backhoe. No. no. Why? The family is like to have it dug by hand. It's I can do a much neater job and it's it's done right, you know. Paul was born and raised in Millbridge, one of 12 children. He left school after eighth grade to earn money for his family. His job was working for a mason who made headstones. But one day, he got an unexpected call from the town undertaker. He says, the guy I did his grades for me is sick. I said, can you help me? I said, well, I says, uh, sure. This first grave I ever dug right here, Vincent and Laura, Funnel. I buried her in 1967 and him in 1967. He has never forgotten Vincent and Laura Fernald, nor any of the others. I buried all of them out through there, down through the years. Down through the years, Paul estimates he has dug more than 2,500 graves, and he's proud of every single one. This is when I've got it dug out. And this is when I got it finished and everything put back in place. He keeps photos and obituaries of the people he has buried. It's a grave digger's scrapbook. Yeah, yeah. It's a memorial book of the memorial of the people that I've buried. Kids, babies, infants, premature, old people, middle age. Buried a guy one time, was 102. Just a way of life, you know. You bury loved ones, you bury strangers. I bury loved ones, strangers alcoholics, drug addicts. This is my mom, Marjorie M. Hall. He has dug graves for his own mother and father, a sister and an aunt. Someone said, well, isn't that hard for you? I said, in my heart and soul, I knew that they weren't there. It's your mom and dad, yeah, but still, you know, you know where they are, they're gone. They're in a better place. Whether it's for a loved one or a stranger, his approach is the same. Every grave has to be perfect. He measures out each one eight feet by four feet. Then he removes the sod in pieces like a puzzle so that he can put it back together exactly the same way. You have to start it right for it to end right. If you do it wrong at the beginning. Yeah, if you do it wrong at the beginning, it's going to look like hell when you get down. Because yeah. everything ain't going back, it ain't going to be lined up the way it should be. My name is Everard D. Hall. Everard will be 72 this year. But he's going to keep at it as long as he can. I put on earth to be a grave digger. My talent is, is, is digging graves. It's, it's a God-given talent. Everybody has a, an occupation that they can do perfect. Mine is grave digging. And after a life spent around death, Everard Hall realizes that one day, someone will have to dig his grave. I'm hoping to do my grave myself. Oh, I, I got plenty of time. God, God knows he, he'll let me know when I get rid of it. Yeah, but you could leave it up to somebody else to dig. Well, I could, yeah, but I, I, I got a plan. I want to do it the way I want it done. I didn't want it screwed up. I want it done the way I want it done. The making of a movie classic. Next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. 
Play it at play.it. Creating a scary movie on a shoestring budget takes genuine genius, which is what two young filmmakers Steve Hartman has found seem to have in abundance. If you want to know how to be a great skateboarder, Maddie Zufelt is not your man. Dude, the point is to cruise on the board. Sam Sukman won't get you into the X Games either. Then you cruise like this. But if you want to know how to form a perfect friendship, these two young men from Rhode Island, both with Down syndrome, can tell you all you need to know. I just care about Maddie. Maddie is basically everything I wish I was. To me, he's like a brother, so he inspired me. Sam and Maddie met about 10 years ago. Yeah, I get teary eyed when I get home. I don't know why. They were in Special Olympics together and have been like two peas in a tub ever since. For the past few years, one of their favorite activities has been to pretend they're making a movie, a zombie movie, which their families, at first, didn't give a second thought. It seemed like another phase, like any other phase, but it just kept coming up, it kept coming up. Sam's brother, Jesse, also noticed they were doing the same scenes over and over. So he did some prying, and that's when he found this notebook, where Sam had storyboarded an entire feature-length film. What were you thinking as you're reading through this? I was like, I can't believe how good this is. And I think that was when I realized that they had put so much work and heart into this that it had to happen. This was the New York premiere. That's a good one. After raising $70,000 on Kickstarter, yeah. Sam and Maddie's movie actually came to life. Rise, my zombie! Or death, as the case may be. Demons. It's called Spring Break Zombie Massacre, and Sam and Maddie wrote every word of the dialogue. Hey, good. Not You're lying now. <laughs> I must warn you, it's really gross in parts terribly offensive in others, and completely ludicrous throughout. Guess what, guys? What? We got jetpacks! In other words, it's destined to become a Halloween cult classic. Wow. I don't do it for fame. I do it because I love it. You know, because... I'm doing it for the yeah, money. Because, because, You're doing it for the money? Yeah. Well, I do because I love it. Have you gotten rich on this so far? Uh, not yet. Not yet. We're making a sequel, though. A sequel? A sequel. Yeah. It'd be based on a tragedy, kind of. Yeah. A tragedy worse than zombies taking yeah. over the world? Well, it's going to be uplifting. No, I'm, I'm sure you'll tragedy. make it work. I'm sure you'll make it yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. wait to see it. This is the final plot. Genius final plot. has never been more genuine. Yeah, help you. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, then. I'm ready. Get set for Josh Groban, next. It's that old devil moon in your eyes. Just when Josh Groban had a popular song with Old Devil Moon. Now, will his lead role in a musical about a comet send his star streaking across the Great White Way? Anthony Mason has saved us a seat on Broadway. Here's to happiness, freedom, and life. May your travel be swift as a scythe cut through the grass. In a studio on New York's 42nd Street, the cast of the new musical, The Great Comet of 1812, rehearses for opening night. 24 members of this production will soon be making their Broadway debuts. 
all the things I could have been, but I never had the nerve. Life. Including the leading man, Josh Groban. So, all right, all right, I've had my time. Close my eyes, let the death bells chime. This is something you've wanted for a long time. Yeah, it was my childhood dream. Is this how I die? Was there ever any other way my life could be? For weeks now, the 35-year-old singer has been putting in grueling 12-hour days to get ready. Is it harder work than you thought it would be? I'm a professional worrier, so it is as hard as I thought it would be. <laughs> but I know you're not afraid to work hard. No, but I'm also, I have, I have an excellent work ethic and also I worry. So I think maybe the two are, are related. I'm ready. Directing Groban and the cast is Rachel Chavkin. Yeah, I really dig into that. There's a lot of yeah, anticipation yeah, yeah, out there about this show. Do you feel it? I feel it. Yeah, I'm I feel anticipating. It. <laughs> I feel it. I mean, we're in a bubble I'm a little bit. I'm dreaming about it you know. every night. And then conducts. Chavkin will also be making her Broadway debut. High stakes for everybody here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High stakes, really... but, but excitement. I think it, it just reminds me of, you know, when I was in high school. If I were a rich that was the last time Groban was in a musical, at age 17, playing a skinny Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof while a senior at the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. Groban went on to the elite musical theater program at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, where his small class included Josh Gad, who'd play Olaf in Frozen. Katie Mixon, who'd play Melissa McCarthy's sister in the sitcom Mike and Molly, and the Tony-winning Leslie Odom Jr., who'd star in Hamilton. So many of my favorite now-on-Broadway actors and TV actors were in my class of 13. But at the end of his first semester, Groban dropped out when Warner Brothers offered him a record deal. His debut album, released in 2001, would sell nearly 7 million copies. His second album, nearly 8 million, the baby-faced baritone, who the New York Times called our national choir boy, was a sensation who defied genre or trend. You said you don't really fit in musically. Yeah, I felt that pretty early in my music career. Has there been a price for that? My award shelf is barren. I feel like sometimes, especially earlier in my career, the way I was written about seemed very dismissive. How did you feel about that? It was discouraging when you already feel like that kind of kid growing up in mm -hmm. elementary school and junior high. I was not ever in the clique. You know, I was never yeah. the kid invited to the parties. The psychology of it, of course, is just that, you know, you go into this big professional world and you're the kid not invited to the party again, you know? Right. But the thing that pushed me through that was that my fans were there for me from moment one. And they appear to be following him to Broadway. Even before its official opening, The Great Comet has been selling out in previews, earning more than a million dollars in its first week. I imagine you've had Broadway offers before. Mm -hmm. And you turn them down. I, yeah, for a number of reasons. Uh, timing is everything. And the other thing is there may be a brilliant show that's been around for a really long time, mm -hmm. and they're looking for the 34th whoever in it. And you don't want to be the 34th and whoever. And the child me says I grew up wanting to do that. 
But I think the adult me says I wanted to bring something new. And I'm so ready. Grobin plays Pierre in Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, the musical's full title, which is adapted from a love story within Tolstoy's War and Peace. Director Rachel Chavkin has transformed the Imperial Theater into Imperial Russia. So the audience is going to be back here? The audience is everywhere. Taking out 200 seats to extend the stage and create an intimate supper club for 1,200 guests. So the cast literally ends up on the stage, in the audience, up on the balcony, everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it would probably be as proper to say there is no stage. When this show was first put on, you had an audience of what, about 80 people? 87. Well, shall we give it a go? Yeah, let's do it. The Great Comet has come a long way from the tiny Ars Nova Theater, where the show was conceived four years ago. Grobin saw an early production and reached out when he heard it was headed to Broadway. But for me, the comet brings no fear. Last year, he began working with Chavkin and Dave Malloy, the musical's composer and creator. Sound pretty good. <laughs> well, you let me know when you want me to back off a little bit. I think on this one, I don't think there's any backing okay. off, right? What brought you to War and Peace? I read it. <laughs> I read it, and it turns out it's pretty good. <laughs> Casting Groban meant he had to learn the accordion, so he bought one. I came into the store like I had sucker written all over my face. I'm just like, <laughs> hi, um, listen, I know this is going to be a real pain in the butt, but I have a lot of money and I've never played before, and I need an instrument because I'm doing this Broadway show. <laughs> he named it Olga. and took it on tour with him this summer to train. <laughs> You'd be playing the accordion backstage to learn how to play? The accordion that I walk out with at the top of the show, that I play throughout the show, that accordion has been to New Zealand, it has been to South Africa, it has been to Australia. That accordion has been on my back for the last year, uh -huh. learning these songs. Or I didn't want to be thrown. I didn't want to come in because I knew there'd be some head scratching. I knew there'd be a little bit of skepticism. Skepticism about? Broadway is no stranger to stunt casting. Yeah. And I'm coming from another world. And I wanted to make sure that it was known right off the bat that I was coming to this world with the maximum amount of respect for it. On the first night of previews this month, after a lifetime of dreaming, Josh Groban finally was ready for his Broadway entrance. What do you remember about that moment? It was more emotional for me than I thought it would be. I was trying to be really calm and collected and professional and thinking, I got, you know, this is our first preview. I got a job to do. Let's go do this. You think about the moments, you know, you didn't know if you could do it. You think about all the people that discouraged you, you know, all the people that encouraged you, the teachers. And then you just have to perform. And then you have to just do it. Yeah. One of our dressers on the show, I had her take my iPhone. I said, please just videotape my first steps out to the stage. I'll never forget it. If I'm ever having a bad day, I'll just, I'll play that. I'll play that, yeah. Scarecrows don't say boo. In fact, they don't say anything at all. Yet, as Luke Burbank tells us, their presence is a scare tactic all the same.
It's a warm autumn day here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And Halloween is in the air. Welcome to the 37th annual Peddler's Village Scarecrow Festival, where you can take in the view or take part in a years-old tradition. My mother and father started this. Donna Jamison's family started the festival back in the 1970s. It's a great thing to come out on a beautiful fall day and do something with your family, and then you can take it home and display it. And that's exactly what Mike and Mary Parashek of Philadelphia have been doing for more than 20 years. It takes my next door neighbor a couple days to get used to it. He used to work late at night. He pulled in the one time and he thought somebody was sitting on my front porch and <laughs> here it was the scarecrow. <laughs> I would not be just a nothing, my head all full of stuffing, my heart all full of pain. And what could be more nostalgic than scarecrows? Remember the Wizard of Oz? This has always been one of my favorite movies, um, along with my daughter. So, um, I don't know, just scarecrows, are, they're a good thing. A good thing that actually goes back to the very beginnings of farming. Not long after people learned how to grow crops, they started losing them to birds. They've tried catching the winged menace or even using kids to scare them away. But mainly, they've put up these lone figures standing guard, which is what most of us think of when we hear the word scarecrow. But these days, traditional scarecrows, like this guy, they're just for decoration. Modern farmers scare away birds using a little more bang. We use bird cannons, reflective tape. We use distress calls. We want the birds to eat the neighbor's cherries, not ours. Kyle Matheson owns Stemilt Farms in Wenatchee, Washington. He's one of the largest cherry producers in the country. These here, these are all bird damage. It's just a constant, you know, battle. Step up, step up. It's a battle he wages with some unexpected weapons, like this falcon. We came in and there was a group of finches uh, in here. Who you may or may not know is the natural predator of the finches and robins that are looking to feast on Matheson's cherries. And he caught it in the air and took it down. But it turns out sometimes even the falcons have a hard time saying no. And he is eating a cherry now, which is to some degree defeating the purpose, right? Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know why he's doing that. Birds devour at least $30 million in cherries every year, and that's just in Washington state alone, which helps explain why farmers will try anything to save their crops. Like these weird, floppy, inflatable figures, the kind you might see at a used car lot. We do move Mr. Pino around uh, to different spots in the vineyard, and that also helps the birds not become used to the damn things. <laughs> Ted Marks owns Atwater Vineyards in the Finger Lakes region of New York. He got the idea for Mr. Pino, and yes, that's his name, from researchers at Cornell University. And he says of all the things he's tried to scare off birds, Mr. Pino works the best. Because it's ever-changing. It just keeps, it keeps the birds away. For farmers, their very way of life depends on defeating these winged thieves. But what about the birds? 
Do you ever feel a little bad for the birds? I haven't felt that bad for them. I always feel they get their share, you know. Even with all these things, they still eat quite a few cherries. And really, who can blame them? On deck, Chicago Cubs fan, Bob Surratt. Game five of the World Series is tonight in Chicago, and no one will be looking on with greater interest and perhaps more mixed feelings than Cubs fan Bob Surratt. The Chicago Cubs finished this season with the best record in all of baseball. My Cubs, the team with the 108-year championship drought, and now they're in the World Series. 2-2. High fly ball to left center. Back at the wall, it's gone! But I'm going to let you in on a deep, dark secret, shared only among the most trusted fellow diehards. For some of us, it's okay if they lose, really it would still be all right. ESPN said it best, just as the Cubs are built on Wrigley and the Ivy and the lovable losing, their identity is equally intertwined with bizarre tales of woe. The smelly goat whose eviction cursed the team in 1945, the black cat who crossed their paths in 69, that guy in the glasses, we dare not speak his name, who reached for a foul ball in 2003. Without all that losing history, the Cubs wouldn't be unique. By winning the World Series, they'll become just like any other team. If they didn't hold the record for the longest championship drought in the history of any sport, would they have their enormous national fan base? Would George Will have written so many eloquent columns about the romance of sticking with a team of losers to gain life lessons? Would longtime broadcaster Jack Brickhouse have ever come up with the slogan he's famous for around here? Everyone's entitled to a bad century. Growing up in Chicago in the 50s and 60s and rooting for the Cubs was something special. They belonged to us. There wasn't the bandwagon there is now. Here at Wrigley Field, it was usually so empty they didn't even bother to open the upper deck. It wasn't hard to sneak into the box seats. I feel sorry for kids who don't have the chance to make that thrilling memory now that the ballpark is practically sold out for every game. So now it can be told, some of us miss our losing Cubs. Of course, as a true fan, I'm rooting for them to win the World Series. But if they don't, at least we'll still get to say, wait till next year. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.